From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to the season finale of Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The record-smashing Florida baseball squad saw their run stretch all the way to the last possible day on the athletic calendar. And although it didn't end the way they hoped, only one team gets to leave Omaha happy. With the season now in the books, this week's Gator Roundtable is with Athletic Director Scott Strickland, discussing a laundry list of items, including the progress being made by both football and men's basketball going into year two of their new regimes, the future configuration of SEC football scheduling, the outlook for Florida-Georgia remaining in Jacksonville, how the Gators have adjusted their NIL approach, the master plan to reimagine the swamp, the continued evolution of the transfer portal, memorable postseason runs from baseball, men's track, and men's golf, finding a new leader for men's tennis, and more. So without further ado, here's the final Gator Roundtable of the year, brought to you by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, it's great to connect with you and, and get some perspective on some of the topics that fans care so much about and we get asked about all the time. So uh, to get us started, I wanted to talk about the the multiple national title runs we saw in rapid succession here in June, starting with the latest, which was baseball. Um, not the ending anyone in orange and blue wanted, obviously, but what did it mean for the program to be back on the biggest stage on the final day of the season? Obviously, it's a lot of fun. Anytime you have a team that goes deep into the postseason and we, you know, you mentioned it's a championship season. We had, you know, five teams here this year that finished uh, either won the national title or finished as national runners up. Wow. Between uh, outdoor track, men's outdoor track, won national title, men's golf, won national title. And we were runner up in gymnastics, women's outdoor track and and of course, baseball. So you ask about baseball, uh, particularly lengthy, you know, it's a spans over several weekends and um really for the entire month of of june you know those guys were were competing in that tournament and there's 64 teams and only one of them gets to win their last game um but we won a bunch along the way and and um you know had great crowds for the regional super regionals here in gainesville the uh fans were tremendous and created an unbelievable atmosphere and uh and then you know saw a lot of a lot of gators in omaha um especially relative to past years we've been there. I thought our, our we had more fans than we had in the past. And so there's just continues to build a relationship between the fans and that program. And Sully, in a lot of ways, uh, has done such an incredible job. I think half the years he's been at UF, he's made the College World Series. But he's had uh, he had a four-year streak from 15 to 18 where the Gators went every year and uh, haven't been back since until this year. One of the re- you know, COVID happened one of those years, so we didn't have it. But he missed three World Series in 19, 21, 22. So it makes it makes you appreciate a little bit more uh, the opportunity to go back this year and 
and the fact that we were there for an extended period of time made it a lot of fun. You mentioned the crowds along the way, especially in regionals and, and super regionals. How fulfilling was it for you and your staff to really see the vision for Condren Ballpark come to life? Because obviously when you designed it, when you planned it, the hope was to be playing big, impactful games there in the month of May. And to have that happen with the record crowds, what did that mean to, to you and your staff? I'm, I'm, it's great for the university, right? Anytime we can engage and connect with Gator Nation is a positive and it's a big part of why we exist is to to bring people and um, connect them to the University of Florida. And, you know, this this program, the baseball program, has always had a, a nice following, even back when we were in McKeithen Stadium. But McKeithen Stadium, while it saw a lot of success for the Gators, you know, wasn't always the – it wasn't designed necessarily from a fan amenity standpoint. It was designed just to, to seat people. And so – even to the, if you think about when we would have good crowds at McKeithen, we had five or 6,000 people at games at McKeithen from time to time. Um, when you would watch it on TV, you never could see them because they were never in the camera angle shots. Hmm. You know, that's one of the things that's really nice about Condren is uh, we're able to bring, uh, put more fans in, but we're bringing, you know, make it more uh, of an experience overall. You know, you don't have to just sit in your seat and watch the game. You can move about the park. There's place for kids. There's place, you know, the berms. Uh, the the little uh, field in the back where the kids can play, uh, the food trucks in the Disney Grove and center field. So not only are there more things to do if you're at the game, uh, but the design is such that people are are closer to the action. And then when the game is televised, you see and feel that coming across on TV. And so mm-hmm. that that was really kind of that was fun to kind of see the you know that that goal to be kind of realized with the way the fans showed up and. Um, you know, create a great atmosphere. And, and, you know, we can talk about facilities and, and, and you know, the impact they have. And obviously this is, is a great example of it having a pretty significant impact. But at the end of the day, um, if, if coaches don't attract the right young people and those kids, those young people don't compete uh, at a high level, none of that's going to happen. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact that this was a special team with a special group of guys and Seller was able to kind of bring all that together is really what made it all happen. You mentioned a couple of the other championships that are in the mix, so let's let's hit on the, each of those here. Men's track, another national title for for Mike Holloway, Mouse, for those that know him more affectionately. From your perspective, what makes him and the program as successful as they've been year in and year out? You and I've talked about before. Great coaches are able to uh, attract the right people and then lead them, and no one does those two things as well as Mouse does. Right? He he's, he recruits phenomenal. Uh, young people to come be a part of the, uh, the Gator track and field program. But then he he leads them. Uh, he's able to uh, set incredibly high expectations and goals and then hold them accountable to reaching those goals. And it starts with the way he holds himself accountable and, you know, the way he goes about what he does. And, um, you know, if, if, uh, if an athlete doesn't, uh, uh, you know, compete the way that, he thinks they should have an event. He's the first one to say, that's on me. I, I got to coach them better. So mm. he's just, he's a really unique leader and um, probably wouldn't matter what sport he's coaching. Mouse would figure out a way to get the most out of people just because that's what great leaders do. But, you know, again, to have the success that he had this year, the men win on the outdoor side, the women finished second in the outdoor side. And then in the indoor, both men and women finished third 
that's pretty high level of consistency. And that's coming off a year before where the women swept both the indoor and outdoor national titles and the men won the outdoor. So there's a, there's a consistency there of competing at such a high level that it's, it's kind of hard to fathom, but it's a whole lot of fun to, to watch and, and cheer for. Well, they've been there year after year. Then you have a program like men's golf, which has really just been building for years, trying to get to that level. They did it this year. And you're talking about something coming to fruition almost 10 years since JCD can took over and just steadily building and building. What did it mean to see him and that program have the breakthrough this year the way that they did? Well, you know, I'll preface it by saying JC may be one of the more popular employees we have in at, at the UAA um, just throughout our department um, he's incredibly well liked because this kind of guy he is and he's he's an easy person to root for and to pull for so really cool to see uh, him reach the mountaintop win the SEC for the first time uh, and then you know win the national championship do that in the same year Obviously, a special group of guys, Fred Biondi, who won the individual NCAA title. But then Ricky Castillo, who's you know been an All-American, seems like the whole time he's been here. Uh, Yushin Lin, who uh, transferred in from Southern Cal, but he's been here, played for us for three years. Been a really important part of that program. But then you got you know other guys like um, John Dubois, who won the SEC title a year ago, placed fourth on this on this lineup, but seemingly is always like winning big matches at key points and, and coming up with big rounds. Uh, and then you got a freshman in Matthew Cress who was a walk-on. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it was a fun group to, uh, to see develop and grow, you know, ever since uh, Fred and, and Ricky set foot on campus and John, we knew it was a really talented group. Um, but like a, a lot of young athletes, they had, you know, some inconsistency early in their time at UF and, uh, JC believed in them and, and you know, um, kept building that thing, you know, brought in Dudley Hart, former Gator golfer, former PGA player himself to be the assistant. And those two just formed a really good tandem, right? JC and Dudley were a great team together to to lead and mentor and, and help these guys grow. And uh, it, it's reminiscent of the, the men's tennis team that won the national title in 21 that had a mm-hmm. bunch of veteran guys that kind of built, you know, had won the SEC for a couple of years and kind of built to the point where they could, they, they broke through and won the national title, a very similar situation. And then just the, the drama of golf match play and what they had to do out in Arizona to, to win that thing, beating Florida state in the national semifinals and a come from behind fashion, uh, needing a playoff hole and, and then turning around, you know, the next day and just having a phenomenal match against a really good, young, talented Georgia Tech team to uh, to bring home the title was uh, pretty exhilarating. You invoked uh, men's tennis there, so I want to talk about that before we move on. Um, Brian Shelton's had incredible success there, and then I guess it was a surprise to most people. Just a few weeks ago, he announces he's stepping down to go coach Ben as a pro. I'm curious, what was your reaction when you got that call from him? And then what was the process in finding a new leader for the program? First off, Brian Shelton has been a phenomenal part of of the Gator program for, for, you know, 12 years. And, um, you know, kind of person he is, the the way he has has led, the the kind of character he has, the competitor he has, 
um, you know, you're not going to find a better person than, than Brian Shelton. And we're so appreciative of his time here and what he's done for the Gators. And, you know, we'll always consider him a big part of, of the Gator family going forward. Um, you know, I wasn't really that surprised. Obviously, uh, you know, Ben, his son, who was part of that 21 national championship team and then won the NCAA individual title in 22. And and you got to realize when Ben was on the title team in 21, he was supposed to be a high school senior. He graduated high school early to come in and play that spring on that team and ended up playing number five singles on that team and then came back for his sophomore year, but it was really would have been his freshman year of college had he not yeah. come in early and played number one all year, won the national championship and and then went off and played some tournaments last summer and ended up he he got really good really quickly. And I think ahead of schedule that that Brian and everyone else thought about Penn. And so Brian came to me probably middle part of this the spring and said this was something that was weighing on him that that he felt like he needed to be out there with Ben. And as Ben uh pursues a, a pro career, Ben's now ranked among the top 40 players in the world wow. in tennis. And um getting ready to play Wimbledon here this month has been, you know, made a round. I think he made it to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open back in January and obviously played in the French. And this is this is going to be his life going forward. And Brian just felt like it was important that that he was a part of that. And so certainly um, understood, disappointed for the Gators, but understood for the Shelton family uh, and respect that decision. And so then it was just, you know, trying to figure out how do we uh, what do we do next going forward and probably had as much interest in that job as any coaching position since I've been at Florida. Wow. I had a really good pool of candidates. Uh, I know every everybody, every fan of every school thinks everybody wants all their jobs, right? <laughs> and anytime a coaching position comes open that, you know, there's just a flood of applicants and yeah. interest. Um, and it's not the case because uh, a lot of the times people have those really who, who you might be really interested in already have really good jobs mm-hmm. and family settled. And, and, you know, it's a lot of times there's not, a compelling reason to to make that transfer to move to another location, uh, even if it is a special place like University of Florida. But but this was a job probably because you know what tennis means in the state of Florida and um, the job Brian has done uh, with our program. We had a lot of interest, a lot of sitting head coaches, and uh, we had uh, you know we were able to talk to several of them and. At the end of the day, Adam Steinberg, who uh, spent the last nine years at the University of Michigan, building them to a top 10 program, uh, kind of an unprecedented era of success there for the Wolverines. Prior to that, he was head coach at Pepperdine and led them to a national title. Uh, Spent a few years early in his career as head coach at Alabama here in the SEC. Uh, Just, you know, uh, really uh, impressive guy. Interestingly enough, Adam interviewed for the job here at Florida while at Pepperdine when Brian was hired. Oh, wow. So he's, he's someone that, uh, he had, he had always kind of, uh, been intrigued by this job and as, as a passion of his to be considered again and excited to have him and his wife, Casey and their kids, me and Billy join us here, uh, in Gainesville. And, uh, he, uh, not only is going to be able to put his own stamp on the program, but we're going to have some consistency and continuity because, uh, his assistant coach, Matt Clover, is going to stay on. The, uh, Matt's been here for the last year or so. Uh, before that was with the USTA Training Center, really well thought of in tennis community. Um, and uh, Matt's going to stay on as the assistant for Adam in the same role he had under Brian. Matt's a really talented young guy with a great career ahead of him as well. But 
the Gators are going to be able to have a little bit of continuity while at the same time having someone with Adam's expertise and experience and, and track record come in to kind of pick up the, uh, the racket from Brian, if you will. I want to talk about something now that I'm sure you rarely get asked about, and that is Gator football. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about football, which I'm sure on, I can't imagine your your social mentions on a day-to-day basis. Um, but we spoke at the end of the season sort of about what you saw in the fall, the progress that was being made. This is a harder period to kind of to, to qualify in the spring because it's not so much what fans get to see. It's stuff going on behind the scenes. But where do you see the program right now with Billy Napier going into year two in terms of their progress, et cetera? You know, I'm just really excited about uh, the fact that Billy's leading our football program and uh, don't know when it's going to show up in the win-loss record, but it's going to uh, in a big way at some point. And Gator's going to be really happy that Billy's our coach. And, and I think he's going to, because of the way he goes about what he does, once he, once, once we get to that level, it's going to be a level of consistency that we're all going to be really excited about. Um, so, uh, you know, he's, we've talked about it before, Adam, you know, he's so good at the uh, uh, foundation piece at the, at the building piece at the, uh, the detail accountability. He is so careful about, um, the kind of athlete he brings in the program, both from a talent standpoint, also from a character standpoint, mm-hmm. um, he doesn't misuse the resources of the University of Florida. So whether it's a scholarship or whether it's, you know, the kind of staff he brings in, he's really thoughtful about, you know, who he lets inside the program. And and it's only been, what, you know, 16, 17 months since he's been here. But the, uh, it's it's a remarkable feeling when you walk through the Hebner Center and walk through those football offices or, or near the locker room there. Just it's a different vibe. And I can't really explain it other than it's 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 really healthy. And there's um, there's a sense that something really special is being built there. And we're, we're going to continually improve and get better. And University of Florida, you keep doing that. You're going to you're going to run into some high level success before too long. You know, I was talking to a friend about this, and I've, I've talked to obviously lots of people about this, and it comes up frequently. You look at the schedule and you see, oh, how many wins are there? What's the record going to be? And so what I was curious to ask you, because I'm actually pretty confident that you don't have a number in your mind of what number win total shows progress at this stage. So what is it that you want to see this fall that will show you beyond what a win total or a number says that we're continuing to move it in the right direction? You know, I don't know if there's anything this fall that will, you know, that that I, I know how you're asking the question and why you're asking that. I, I I see the progress getting made on a daily basis, so I don't have to wait for this fall to know that, that you know, the Gators are getting better and, you know, we're going to get to the point we all want to get to, which is we want to, you know, get back to Atlanta, compete for SEC championships, and then go to the playoff and have a chance to win national championships. Um, our, our goal every year is to, is to be in that position. Mm-hmm. And so – Times you have programs that are different stages of building toward that than others. Uh, we just talked about baseball. You know, um, Sully in 19 had a team that didn't even host a regional. And then 21, 22, we hosted regionals, couldn't get out of it. Um, and this year we played for a national championship. So every single one of those years, we started the year with the goal of competing for an SEC championship and a national championship. The roster wasn't set up in such a way to do it those, those other years. And this year it was. Um, I don't know where we are in that life cycle for our football program, but I know we're moving that direction. 
In terms of where the SEC is headed, this has been a, a huge topic, especially recently. And I always like to ask you questions about this. I know there's only there's a degree to what you can say, but I always like to see what you can share. Um, the eight or nine conference game discussion for 2024. I guess what ended up happening is it, it came out, I don't remember if it was officially or unofficially, which schools were in favor, which schools were not in favor. Uh, and as I think you've been very clear all along, you want to see more conference games. You want more of these matchups. What can you tell us about those conversations? And I know you're, you're a Hamilton guy. So to, to what degree can you take us inside of the room where it happened? My sense is most people in the league understand there's a lot of value to, to playing a, more SEC competition. And you know, the, some of the reports about who voted for what are just, I think people are making stuff up because, yes, we have been supportive of a nine-game schedule, but the 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 eight-game schedule for 2024 was unanimously voted on mm-hmm. by all 14 schools. And the reason was, even the, those of us who, who prefer nine games, we all voted for eight, is given the circumstances of when we're making the decision and um, – the fact that Texas and Oklahoma are coming a year earlier than we originally anticipated. Uh, there's a lot of non-conference games that have already been scheduled. Everyone's already got a full non-conference slate of four games for 24. The eight-game schedule made a lot of sense for where we are right here, right now. Moving forward, we're going to have to figure it's a one-game schedule. That's all we've decided on is how many we're going to play in 24. We need to move pretty quickly and figure out what we're going to do 25 and beyond. I, I do think nine is the is the best way to go. It's be my preference. I hope that's the right way to go. I should say, there's a lot to to, to be determined though. You know, we're gonna have a 12 team playoff beginning in the 24 season. How much is the committee going to value strength of schedule when they're yeah. making a determination on who gets to play in the in the 12 team playoff? Um, it, there might be some wisdom going through a, a cycle or two of a 12 game playoff to get a better understanding of how much the committee is really going to value strength of schedule and um, give our, in order to give our, if they do value strength of schedule, then playing nine games in the SEC, you know, makes a ton of sense. If they aren't, then, you know, maybe a different approach should be had there, but there's just, you know, want to be measured. You don't, uh, I like the idea of playing as many SEC teams as possible in every sport. You know, I, I just, as a general philosophy, I think that's really important uh, it's it's the best uh, competition you can have. That's what our players want to compete against. It's who our fans want to see us compete against. So just as a general rule, um, I'm all for the, the more we play uh, as far as SEC competition being the best idea. But given the particulars of, of this situation, um, I, I agreed with those who suggest we do eight for 24 and, and kind of uh, – play it out. And and as we get more information, maybe we'll make a different decision. Hmm. In terms of going forward, we know that divisions are no longer in play. And that's consistent with what the Big 12 did. I think they were the first ones to do it and so on and so forth. Um, how do you see the future of the schedule in terms of what teams you're playing? Is it a set number of permanent rivals? Again, I know a lot of this is in progress, but there's so much curiosity about what the future looks like. And is it pods? Is it one or two rivals? What can you tell us about that and and the conversations taking place? Yeah, well, the eight-game model has, uh, if it continues beyond, you know, the 24 season, if we stay with the eight-game model, we'll have one permanent opponent and we'll rotate the other seven. Uh, and the nine-game model, you would have three annual opponents, and the other six you would rotate. Either model 
even though there's a lot of attention placed on who the who your permanent opponents are, both models really make that less of an issue than it is in the current division format. Because in the current division format, we we play eight SEC games. Six of them are your division opponents, and one is your crossover permanent, uh, you know, non-division permanent. So seven of your eight are permanent, and you have right. one rotator. We're going to be going one permanent, seven rotators, or three permanent, six rotators, and you're going to see everybody at least twice in a four-year period. That means you're going to have a home game once out of every four years at a minimum with every other team in the SEC, and you're going to be at their place once every four years. Uh, and so you're going to have so much more variety in matchups across the board that who you play as a permanent is not going to be near as impactful, in my opinion. Uh, I understand right now, all we know is this 7-1 model that we've been playing, this, mm-hmm. you know, seven permanents every year. And there's a, and because of that, there's a ton of importance placed on who those permanents are. And it's hard for us because we've never experienced the other to really wrap our head around permanents aren't quite as important. But five years from now, we're going to look back and say the permanents aren't really that important. Before we, we leave the football conversation, I want to talk about stadiums. There's two in particular. Uh, the first one is the one in Jacksonville, and they recently announced they're doing this multi-year, huge, huge renovation of that stadium, which also happened back in the mid-90s. That displaced Florida, Georgia temporarily, then it returned. Um, given where we are now, I know the Florida, Georgia conversation is every year it comes up and there's all this debate about it. What can you tell us about the future of Florida, Georgia as we know it? Yeah, well, it's important to point out that the stadium in Jacksonville, they have not finalized those plans. They have okay. they have they have shown an idea and a concept. There's no timetable. There's no we're doing this, then this is how that game the Florida Georgia game is going to be impacted. So right now it's all conjecture. We are obviously going to play uh this fall in uh, Jacksonville, the uh, Florida Georgia game. And we have already picked up the option the two schools have to play the 24 and 25 games there as well so we'll be there the next three years and it's hard to speculate on what might happen if the stadium isn't available right now but uh, I'm sure if if those plans do get finalized and we do have to find an alternate location we'll we'll have conversations with the University of Georgia and uh, both schools will will come up with a way to make sure that the rivalry continues to uh, have an important place on people's calendars but right now it's it's just kind of speculation and conjecture how important do you think the neutral site is to the rivalry? Or is it just the fact that Florida and Georgia play every year? Do you think it would lose some of what makes it special if it didn't have that 50-50 split to it? You know, I'm sure it would still be an impactful game on campus, but there's there's two reasons why the neutral site thing works really well. One uh, is the tradition aspect of it. Uh, you know, Jacksonville is... While it's in the state of Florida, it's really a border town. It's right there up against the the Georgia state line. And there's a lot of people in South Georgia that, you know, feel like Jacksonville's in their backyard. And and obviously it's, you know, both both schools kind of have a claim to Jacksonville, if you will. So there's a lot of tradition there. And I think that's, you know, that's um, not something you give up lightly. The second reason is financially it's been incredibly uh, beneficial to both schools to play that game every year in Jacksonville. It, it's more financially impactful to play that game in Jacksonville this year, every year, as opposed to going home and home. So those are two really important reasons why the neutral site has worked and why I think it will continue to work is the tradition piece and the financial piece. 
The other stadium I wanted to talk about is uh, is your stadium. That would be the Swamp. We've been talking, I want to say for years now, when, when we've done these these check-ins, and we ask about the progress of the Swamp, kind of the big picture makeover it's going to get. What can you tell us about where that plan is now and, and what the timeline looks like? Well, we're getting close to uh, beginning selection for architects to actually begin the design part of this. Um, we've, we've spent, as you mentioned, quite a bit of time doing multiple studies on, um, you know, the Ben Hill Griffin stadium and and what the future of it is. It is, uh, one of the more iconic stadiums in the country for college football, in my opinion, you know, but it's also nearing a hundred years in age. And so there's a lot of needs and and I could go down the list of areas we want to touch, um, and, you know, starting everything from gates concourses restrooms concessions you know the the entryways into the bowl the seating bowl itself everybody everybody when you start talking about renovations the first thing they think of is seats Mm -hmm. or you know what are you going to do there um but there's so many other things that go into you know a major renovation of that nature just little things you know we we don't have anywhere to prepare food in this stadium and so on game days we have to we have to cook at off-site locations and bring hot dogs uh, any sandwiches, anything gets served in the clubs or suites have to be pr- pr- um, prepared off-site and brought in, which limits what we can do at concessions and, and the quality. Um, but, uh, the new the new Condren Ballpark has two kitchens in it. So, <laughs> in fact, we use Condren Ballpark's kitchen to help um, service the, the swamp on game days. But, oh, wow. again, when it's not on-site, the quality is not as good and, and you're not able to be as efficient. I'm just giving that as one example you know, one of the kind of behind the scenes things that we need to do. We have, um, we, we went and visited Lambeau Field. I think I may have mentioned this last last podcast, uh, football season. We were there for a Packers game. Uh, Lambeau Field is the oldest stadium in the NFL, and it is 20-something years younger than the Swamp. Hmm. And because the NFL, they don't renovate old facilities. They just tear them down and build new ones. Right. College right. athletics tends to want to – uh, because your tradition and because where they're located on our campuses, we tend to want to update and, and expand, extend the life um, of our facilities. So Lambeau Field seats 78,000, which is 10,000 fewer than, than Ben Hill Griffin. And they have a, thou- a thousand point of sales for concessions for 78,000 people. Uh, ben Hill Griffin, we have 88,000 fans and we have about 200 concession point of sales. Wow. And you could probably make similar uh ratio comparisons for restrooms and size of concourses and just there's just a lot of ways that that uh our stadium uh has uh ways it's hard to move people through it's hard to really service them appropriately so we still want eighty thousand st- seats uh in the stadium we you know in a perfect world we'd have uh, we wouldn't reduce our seat count very much but we got to we have to figure out a way to expand these services and um, you have to be really creative in old facilities in order to do those kind of things. And so that's why we take a little bit longer. But I uh, don't have a timeline right now, but it's going to be a significant project, several hundred million dollars. And uh, we're closer uh, to, to having more specifics now than we were last time we spoke at them. And, and hopefully next time we'll talk, I have, I'll be able to share some more details. Yeah. Well, and since the last time we talked also, the um... – the Hevner Training Complex has really become a focal point of the program. What have you seen from that facility in terms of the way that you designed it, what you intended, and now the way that it's actually being utilized and impacting the program? Well, it's been huge for the football team. 
their you know day to day existing existence is uh, not only nicer but much more efficient. You know, to have everything uh, right under one roof on two levels and right next to the practice facility in the Condren Indoor, their their existence is much better. Not only does it help current team, obviously from a recruiting standpoint, you hear a lot of comments as as recruits have come through and seen it. Yeah, it's 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 made a big impact. Probably though, the biggest uh, department wide, the biggest impact has been the dining hall that services all of our student athletes, all 500 plus student athletes eat their uh, three meals a day. Hmm. And this was, uh, we were putting these plans together in place to design that facility and build it. It seemed like a really efficient way to feed 500 plus athletes was to have a central dining hall. Um, and and that's been the case, but the what we didn't anticipate is the um, kind of the cultural impact, social mental health impact it's had on all of our athletes to be able to have a place where they can go and um, interact with athletes in other sports, develop relationships, um, and and just kind of have an anchoring place, if you will, two or three times a day. Uh, In addition to the dining hall, there's a lot of uh, lounge study space in there. And you'll go in there all hours of the day and you'll see kids if they're not, if it's not a, a time when food's being served, they're still up in there. Um, you know, working on computers, laptops, homework type stuff, uh, just hanging out together. The feedback we've gotten from all of our athletes across all of our sports is what a game changer that has been. And um, it's not something that very many schools have, an all-athlete dining hall. Hmm. And uh, there are a few, but not very many. But it's the the impact goes far beyond just the efficiency of feeding a bunch of young people. The, the, the uh, impact of kind of having the social interaction on a regular basis, I think has been incredibly healthy. And we all talk about in this day and age, the mental health of young people. Um, that was something we kind of, uh, was serendipitous that it's made such an impact this year for us. So the last time we connected, uh, men's basketball had just sort of gotten underway the first year with Todd Golden. Now a season under their belts and obviously a lot going on on the recruiting side and player acquisition. Um, what can you say about the way that you've seen Todd and his staff reshaping men's basketball? You know, very similar to, to what Billy's doing in football as far as, you know, kind of a uh, building the roster up and also focusing on on the relationship piece of, you know, the the culture piece. And, you know, Todd's such an easy, likable guy, but he's, you know, like like in football, he's brought in a lot of really um, uh, well thought of assistant coaches and staff. And they they seem to have really, you know, kind of blended right into the to the rest of the UAA. They fit the culture, I think, of the UAA, which is so important. And, um, you know, I, I think Todd, if you're spending time with him, you, you understand how strategic he is. And, you know, those who follow uh, the recruiting and the transfer portal stuff will, will you know, see they, they, what he is focused on, right? He, it's obvious he, he wanted more size and we we're going to be quite a bit bigger this year. Yeah. And uh, he wanted more, you know, shooting the basketball at a premium, you know, guys who can make baskets, he puts a premium on that. And um, so those, you know, I think, I think when our fans see this year's team, which is going to look a lot different than last year's team, just from a roster standpoint, uh, you'll see a lot more size, and and you'll see a lot of emphasis on uh, guys who can who can make open shots from the perimeter, and and you know, a lot of that has to do with how Todd wants to play. It's a very NBA approach of mm-hmm. you know take as many three pointers and as many two pointers at the rim as you can get up, 
and and then just be really active on defense and and you need to be athletic, you need to be big, and, and you need to be able to have uh, some shooting skills. You mentioned the transfer portal. Uh, that's obviously played a huge role in basketball specifically in the way that rosters are, are just totally turned over year to year. I'm curious, with the transfer portal, where do you think that is relative to the intent? Because that's what I want to talk about here, with, and I want to talk about with NIL as well. But in terms of the, the portal especially basketball, it's almost like a new team every year. And I know a lot of people, myself included, wonder if that's the best for college athletics because you don't have that relationship, that long-term connection with a lot of these players. What are your thoughts about where the portal is and and, and where it's headed? Great question, uh, Adam. And I, I wish I had a, a clear answer. You know, you had two dynamic things hit college athletics at the same time. And by di- dynamic, I mean really big changes in how we do things, dynamic yeah. changes, uh, one being NIL, the other being the transfer portal. And they really both kind of, they happen at the same time, but that there was no master plan design. Right. It kind of was, it just kind of worked out that way. And so it actually is obviously is uh, create a lot of disruption in how rosters are constructed and um, you know, how they're built. And, and then that has a lot of ripple effects, right? Uh, you know, how do you build continuity? How do you build those relationships that are really important? Uh, is there a negative impact on young people and their academic pursuit? Well, graduation rates, we're kind of early in this. We're about two years into all mm-hmm. this. You know, over time, will graduation rates decrease? Um, because historically, there's been some data that says that students who don't transfer, whether they're athletes or not, graduate at a higher percentage than those who do transfer. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we're kind of living in uh, a science experiment, if you will. Yeah. And um, the, I think over time you'll see some, I'm hopeful we'll see some tweaks to the transfer windows. Uh, they seem really broad right now. I think you could tighten those up. That would be my my hope. You know, the SEC has a rule uh, for their uh, fall sports. The NCAA has two different windows where fall sport athletes could transfer right after their fall season. And then again, after the spring semester and the SEC does not allow intra-conference transfers for those who get in the portal after the spring semester. Meaning that if, if you're a, if you're at an SEC school and you play a fall sport, so football, volleyball, um, soccer, um, you have to go in the transfer portal right after your fall season if you want to transfer to another SEC school. And if you get in the portal in the spring you and you want to transfer to another SEC school, you would actually have to sit out a year. You would not be immediately eligible. So obviously they can transfer and go to a school outside the SEC and that wouldn't impact them. But I think having – to me, that's common sense to, to not um, have it be a nonstop revolving door. Um, you know, a lot of times in life – uh, we learn lessons when we when we uh, you know go through trials and tribulations and we stick through things uh, and obviously sometimes tr- transferring makes a lot of sense and so I'm not trying to sound like the old man saying get off my lawn <laughs> but um, you know maybe maybe we could maybe we should look at something a little more reasonable as far as what those windows look like those transfer windows yeah uh, the other seismic shift you mentioned is of course NIL 
And even in the time since we last spoke, a lot has happened on that front. I mean, it seems to be changing every single day. Uh, and I know that, that you guys have made a, a further investment in that by bringing on Ben Chase to oversee your NIL strategy. And then obviously at the at the team level as well, football, basketball, have their own people that operate in that space. What can you tell us about where the Gators are now relative to NIL capability and, and being where you want to be on that front? You know, we want to do everything we can to support our athletes and whether that's helping them uh, achieve their academic goals, whether athletic goals, um, or in this case, they're, they're, you know, their opportunities in the NIL space. You know, we want, we want our athletes to have as many opportunities, um, as anyone in the country, if not more, uh, and Gator Nation being so big with 450,000 living alum, alumni and a state of 21 million people, there should be a lot of NIL opportunities for, for Florida Gator athletes. Um, you know, if you come here and you put on that orange and blue uniform, you're going to you're going to be representing one of the more most well-known brands in all of sports. Uh, the, the most, uh, you know, the the sports entity that has more fans than any other in the state of Florida. And so there's there should be a lot of opportunities there. And so, you know, you mentioned Ben Chase, who's our director of NIL strategies. He works with uh, all of our sports um, and our, you know, helps our athletes. Uh, make connections that that can be helpful there, and and then obviously um, you know we have uh, the the third party collective uh, Florida Victorious, uh, which is uh, uh, the iteration that came out of you know some early entities in this space, and uh, you know Nate Barbera is a full time CEO of that. He has a staff of three or four people. You know, there's um, NIL is not a part time job if if you no. want to be successful, and so. Uh, Florida Victorious. Jose Costa is the uh, is the uh, uh, founder, uh, who's a Gator alum from South Florida. Uh, really successful businessman who uh, uh, kind of has taken this on as a labor of love to make sure that the Gator athletes have a uh, have you know really meaningful opportunities to support them, but also do it in a way that is. Uh, uh, maybe a little more elegant and, and not just a blunt instrument where young people are having to, you know, are able to help uh, local nonprofits and and uh, give back a little bit to the Gainesville community. So there's been a lot of change. You know, we're two years into this NIL space and we've gone from the schools being really hands off to, uh, you know, it's a really critical part of what we do. And it's important that our athletes uh, have opportunities. Big picture, because I know that we, we've talked about it in the past and you had said if things are going to change meaningfully, it, it almost certainly have to come from Congress. And once you get into that area, then who knows when when it gets done, how it gets done uh, organically over the course of the last six to, to 10 months. Have you seen any changes in terms of the framework of it? Is it is it getting closer to the intent? And I'll, I'll be the old man on the lawn here. The intent being, you know, athletes who are being compensated for use of their name image like this not necessarily just putting money in pockets which some people have kind of turned it into do you see that it's maybe evolved at all or is it still not what it what it, it was intended to be you know I, I think you're really naive if you think that it's only going to be for the high profile athletes who have legitimate sponsorship opportunities mm -hmm. um, college athletics is the only level of sport in this country that stocks this roster solely from recruiting. We don't have a draft. We don't have, uh, we don't, you know, assign uh, schools based on what neighborhood you live in, like in high school. Right. 
we have to convince young people to come to our campus and enroll. That's the only way we can stock our rosters. And so in that environment, any and everything that is a part of our environment is going to be used in recruiting. And so, um, I, and, and when I say that, that's not, Hey, come here and you'll get X number of dollars, but it is hopefully having a lot of opportunities for our current athletes so that when we are out and our coaches are recruiting, they can say, hey, you can come to the University of Florida. You can get a degree from a top five public university. There's no promise of what you're going to do with that degree or how successful right. you'll be with that degree. But we can tell you this is a really good degree. And there are a lot of opportunities for people who have a degree from the University of Florida. And if you come here uh, and earn that degree, the doors, a lot of doors are going to open up for you. And at the same time, you're going to have unbelievable facilities. You're going to have outstanding coaches. You're going to play in front of the most passionate fan base in the country. And there's going to be a lot of NIL opportunities. And you can talk to our current athletes and they can vouch and verify any and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have that piece in place uh, as uh, a high major athletic program this day and age, if you missed on any of those, if the academic piece wasn't good, if the facility piece isn't good, if the coaching piece, if there's no fan support, you name it. If there's not NIL opportunities, if you're missing any of those, you're going to be at a at a major disadvantage. And mm-hmm. so um, it's everything, everything that happens in college athletics. The fact that we're a Jordan Jumpman school is used in recruiting. Mm-hmm. Every single thing that happens in college athletics comes back to recruiting. And so it's it's natural that NIL would as well. And, and it was predictable um, from the very beginning that that would be the case. Final thing for you before we leave, we always like to do this with you. Uh, it, it's summertime. Theoretically, you have more time off than you normally would. Uh, what's on the queue? Wh- which streaming services are you most plugged into right now? Tell us what is, uh, what's been driving your interest when you're not at the office lately. You know, I knew you were going to ask me this, Adam. And I've, I have, uh, this has been a pretty busy spring, you know, tracking all the the gator sports i've not i'm i'm way behind on uh my my tv uh it, it happens usage. it happens um i'm actually so my wife and i are celebrating our 30th anniversary this summer wow congratulations we have a, a trip coming up uh, we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time in london i'm going to wimbledon for the first time wow and then we're going to uh, spend some time in italy never been to italy hmm. and um so i've actually been reading a historical fiction novel about Rome that uh, I am I've been so my free time I've been reading and not watching but uh, trying to trying to you know get ready to learn a little bit so that when I go over there I have a better appreciation for the the culture and the history of of uh, Italy that's very hybrid you took it to another level here with the <laughs> book on the history of Rome uh, is there anything in, in the queue anything that you're hoping to get to when you are done with reading or maybe when you've had enough reading I'm, I'm open to suggestions. I will say that, um, you know, you and I have talked about Ted Lasso in the past. Yes. And I have uh, I have not yet watched the final episode. I've watched the whole final season, but I've not watched the except for the final episode. Wow. And I know it's been out for a month. That takes but, incredible discipline. You know, my wife and I want to sit down and watch it together. We've we've been running around, as I said. We've not had an opportunity. I'm hoping here uh, – Maybe during the holiday, I can I can finally wrap that up. What a great show that's been! I really don't have anything beyond that that I've uh, I've been able to dig into, but I I hope to have a little downtime this summer where I can find something. If you have any suggestions, I'm all ears. I've got a, a one that don't watch the Idol on Max. That's terrible. 
Um, but I would suggest Silo on Apple TV. So while you're in the Ted, you, you might even get a, a trailer for it when you're watching Ted Lasso. It's a little bit sci-fi. It's kind of like Lost. Uh, people that live underground and they don't know why they live underground. You're not allowed to ask questions about it. Otherwise, you get thrown out into the into the uh, the bitter universe, which may or may not actually be as bad as they say it is. Good sales pitch. Is it intriguing? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It it sounds a little dystopian, obviously. It's very dystopian. Yes. I, I try to, you know, <laughs> I don't do a lot of dystopian okay. stuff. Um, <laughs> I work in college athletics. That's dystopian <laughs> enough, right? <laughs> Uh, okay, well, in that case, I'll, I'll work on something better. Um, but but while I think about that, I'll let you go. I know you still have a lot of things to get to before you get to uh, head on your vacation. But thank you, as always, for your for your candor, for sharing so much with Theater Nation. Uh, and we're looking forward to, to next season already. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Uh, it's going to be great. And anytime when the sports stop in June, that's always a weird feeling around here. It's, uh, yeah. you know, the, the scene in... Uh, and Talladega Nights, where Ricky Bobby says that he doesn't know what to do with his hands. I kind of feel <laughs> that way when all the games stop playing. I, I don't, you know, my calendar suddenly dries up. Um, but uh want to encourage you and all of Gator Nation to uh, find some time to rest this summer. And, and uh, Gators will be back playing games in August before we know it. And soccer and volleyball and, of course, football. And look forward to seeing everybody on campus this fall. And uh, go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.